There has been a big push over the last decade to incorporate breathwork and respiration into training. Several tech companies have produced masks or devices that target these qualities. But what exactly is best practice, and how do you incorporate this into your rehab or training without scaring off your clients? In this episode, I am joined by longtime MLB athletic trainer and performance coach Andrew Hauser, who helps us navigate this space. Let's do this. Welcome to Finding Small Wins. My name is Adam Layakino, and I'm a physical therapist in the NBA and a former performance coach in Major League Soccer and the National Women's Soccer League. The purpose of this show is to have conversations that pull back the curtain on sports. We're here to learn how we can upgrade our health and performance and shed some light onto how industry leaders and experts are finding the small wins that help them along the way. In this episode, I'm excited to introduce you to Andrew Hauser. Andrew is one of those types of people that will continually be learning and reading throughout his career. You know, he has a thirst for getting better at what he does and has an incredible amount of humility at the same time. His formal education was in athletic training, but I want to be clear that his degree does not encompass all that he is capable of because of how much learning he has pursued over the years. You know, most recently, he completed a certified mental performance coach because he recognized the value in the mental skills and what he does for the athletes. Andrew does a great job in this episode highlighting his career path, so I'll, I'll leave that to him. You know, I want to highlight the reason I invited Andrew on the show is because whenever we do connect, I always walk away learning something new. You know, that certainly is the case in this episode as we get into the weeds about monitoring and training respiration and blood oxygenation. Now, let's jump into this conversation with Andrew Hauser. Andrew, thank you uh, so much for coming down today, man. I know we've been trying to get at this for a couple months now. I've got a newborn. you got a little one. We're trying to do our own thing over here, but at the same time, connect. So I just appreciate you taking the time to finally link up and have a chat and chop it up. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's funny because we go way back, and it's like we, especially as seasons happen and family comes more and more into focus, harder and harder to connect even when you're in the same city absolutely uh speaking of being in the same city we weren't always in the same city so how did you let's just kind of zoom out here like our paths cross a little bit in atlanta but before that you've had a much of a career as well so let's just kind of talk about zoom out here what was your entry point into working with pro sports yeah so i um when i was a junior in college actually so i went to the university of kansas i um i got an internship with the arizona diamondbacks because at that point I knew I wanted to be in pro sports. I didn't really know what pro sport. Went to Arizona and spent, it, it was a, actually a pretty wild summer. It was between my junior and senior year. So I'd intern with the uh, long-term rehab, like minor league rehab in the mornings, uh, AAA in the evenings. And like I met uh, one of my best friends actually while I was down there was at the University of Arizona. I was the strength coach there at the time. Um, it's just funny. A lot of things that summer came full circle later in life. But um, yeah, that ignited me just from like, that was the first time in my career since I got out of like playing sports that I was like, wow, this actually felt like a team environment. And that that's a credit to the sports medicine strength group um, in Arizona, uh, just how they push each other. And that just set me on uh, down a path. From there, I was—I mean, I was a strength coach in the minor leagues with the Phillies, um, an athletic trainer with the Tampa Bay Rays. Is for me, I never really knew. I didn't feel like—I don't want to say just a trainer, but just an athletic trainer, or just a strength coach. I, probably somewhat similar to yourself. Like I just kind of all, saw it all together and all one. Um, and that was all, really all my mentors throughout the years have been kind of of that mindset. So some of it may have been happenstance, some of it maybe just the universe drawing you together. <laughs> um, but um, so I, I ended up back in Arizona, um, kind of a swing position to be on both the medical and the strength side. Uh, and then that grew to me going to Atlanta, which is where we would have met. You were still in PT school, I think, at the time, or just finished PT school. I just finished, yeah. Um, so I was director, oversaw the medical and the strength, you know, kind of of everything organizationally. Um, yeah, and then left Atlanta. And then the last three years of my baseball career, I was the rehab director with the Dodgers. So um, 
Yeah, and then since after the 21 season, I've been doing kind of the private thing, which has been a totally different, totally different world. Um, but unbelievable being on the other side of it. And now I just have new perspectives hey, on both. I'm looking forward to diving in with that with you because we were talking pre-show a little bit more about that. But there's a few things I want to kind of double click on because kind of casually passed over being in a position in Atlanta. That was pretty cool. Yeah. And then also you had some great experiences in the Dodger, um, having been to some success in the playoffs. So let's just double click on more of the Braves situation. And you were the director of player yeah. health and performance there. Correct. What I'm really curious about, which really haven't had much of a t- chance to catch up on, was like when you were in that position, right? It's a leadership position. You get to connect everybody together. When you were there with the experiences you had with Ken Crenshaw, Ken Crenshaw and the Diamondbacks out here, mm-hmm. what was your vision in that position? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so the role in and of itself, that was like always my dream role. So like once you get into it, it's like, all right, now, you know, like I, I came up, I was mentored so heavily by Ken. He had his vision for the Diamondbacks and how things have gone there, which has been unbelievable. How many people have gone on and gotten higher level roles, I mean, including myself. Um, so it really was my couple things I think going in, like I wanted to be considered, like I wanted to see outside like free agents identify our team and be like, man, I want to go there because I know I'm going to get better and maybe I can either get back maybe something I feel like I've lost or like it's going to get me a couple more years um, in the big leagues. Um, But I think the most important thing for me beyond that was like I – and what I really took from Ken is like you, we wanted to bring in people that were going to push and motivate one another, but also that like they could take your job, like find identifying people throughout the minor leagues or outside of the game that could come in. I, I say compete, but like, it's really like competing together. Like it was more pushing for more of that team atmosphere. Um, and like, that's what I tell everybody, every interview I, I ever did. I was like, I want, like, we're looking to hire people to take our jobs. So whatever your passion is, like, maybe you want to be a director. Maybe you want to be a head trainer. Maybe you want to be a head strength coach. Maybe it's, maybe you want to be a, somebody in the NBA. That's fine. Like, how can we help you get there? Um, and then, like, once you've, once we had started to identify those things, uh, I mean, it just set us down <laughs> so many different paths and some of the stuff we were doing there was was really really cool and we didn't necessarily get to complete some of that stuff but it's like that i've been able to pass some of that stuff on to um you know i've got a big network in a number of sports and like being able to pass that information on to be like hey like this was something really cool we were doing yeah you run with it um so it was more about getting everyone like you have a collective vision um and let's let's see where this takes us. Just it definitely changes every day. It, it does because <laughs> in, in those environments, there's just always so much going on. But I just appreciate hearing that vision that you had. But then ultimately, you ended up in a great situation in LA where you had some success with some other great practitioners. And I just want to like double click on some of that time there, but more importantly, hear about the opportunities that you had. You know, having gone to a World Series, mm-hmm. we win one or two. We won one. Okay. Um, yeah, that was that was a fun time because so when I left Atlanta, we had just made the playoffs for the first time. And coming from where we were, like we were not good when I got there. Like we were one of the worst teams in the game for a couple of years. Um, our GM at the time had made a lot of deals and we had brought on kind of a lot of expiring contracts and a lot of guys towards the end of their career. Um, not I love being around those guys because you you learn a lot from them, guys that have just had long careers. Um, but 19, or I'm sorry, it would have been 18. It was my last year in Atlanta. It was like, there was a lot of excitement. We got super hot and like, and then we ended up winning the division and going to the, to the playoffs. Um, that was a totally different environment because it's like, you didn't really expect to win. You're just like, hey, we got to roll. <laughs> like, we got to, appreciate this for what it is and go with the, like, we're the hot hand right now. Um, and then you got to LA, they were coming off a world series appearance where they had lost, but it was, it was like just every day you showed up, you expected to win, just go about your business. And and that's really 
I imagine Atlanta now is more like that because they have that success. They've had that success now. Uh, but yeah, 19, shoot. I mean, we rolled through people. I was like, wow, this is the best team I've ever seen. <laughs> and then we uh, uh, we got to the playoffs. We ended up, ah, oh, man, it was kind of a heartbreaking defeat. We lost in the division series that year. 20, we came back. Obviously, COVID happened. Um, as I'm sure you could attest, that felt like three seasons in one. Yes. So that was a that was a long year, but yeah. So we came back. We were, I mean, we were in the bubble for the postseason for about eight weeks. Um, and I, I was talking to someone about this recently. I feel like in the postseason, there's usually like a handful of moments where it's like that's the turning point, and, and you see it when like you don't always recognize it, but you like feel like oh, okay something's happening. It's happened against us. It happened against us in 21. Um, but yeah, there were a couple moments in when we got to the division series. I mean, it was really every round along the way, um, that just things happened and you're like, all right, we're going to win this. We're, there was, there was really no stopping us at that point. Um, it was an unbelievable experience. And then 21, you go back in, you expect to to win again, um, and a couple of those moments happened against us in the the championship series. And actually, that was Atlanta's opportunity to they they beat us and they went on and, and won the World Series. So, uh, if anything, it's kind of poetic justice. That's that's my last game in the big leagues was <laughs> losing to uh, to Atlanta. I remember I was one of the last people in the dugout, just being like, ah. But in those situations, like you're just. You, you felt like you were a part of that because you, you, I mean, I was on the ground floor of a lot of things there and shoot, I mean, a good majority of their staff, I had a big hand in hiring. So it's like, you want to see those people go out and succeed. So if you're going to lose, like those, you want to lose to your friends. <laughs> and you certainly did. Um, I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't put two and two together when I was watching that world series, um, that a lot of the staff that was there was when you had made all those hires. So now I imagine being in that, uh, dugout like you said was kind of like full circle it's like oh wow you know kind of like what a way to go out you know without, yeah. without winning it you know wish we didn't lose but <laughs> but no it was unbelievable for them and again they they had those moments like there were um once those happen I, I don't feel like there's any beating those teams those are the teams that I feel like there's the Red Sox I think are always a good example I look at them because they're they have a lot of talent I mean you have to have a lot of talent to get to that point but maybe they're not considered like the New York Yankees, but they always have like this different team chemistry. And those are, those moments are really, to me, what really pushes those chemistry, that chemistry to the next level. Now you speak of moments. Like one thing that I always enjoy about being in sports is you get to enjoy and experience some of the behind the scenes uh, moments that happen. So talking about moments, you know, we can leave names out, but do you care to share any uh, memorable clubhouse stories that you have? Oh, <laughs> uh, how many can you share? Let's well, limit it to one to save people some grace here. Yeah. Uh, you know what? We had this guy in LA. He's with another club now. And <laughs> there's a couple guys, actually. Um, he would... Uh, another guy on staff would be his hype man for, for different nights. And so when he was in the lineup, uh, he'd get him on the table. He'd feed him grapes, get him ready for the game, hype him up. Uh, it was unbelievable yeah i mean he did that the whole whole time i was there um i wish i could get deeper into that one. <laughs> oh my gosh we had oh we had another guy that he actually he called me earlier this season they were they were on the road and we would always talk i don't know how much of this is appropriate either but he would always talk about how outrageous uh You've probably never heard of West Pearl Baptist Church, uh, but they they'll picket things. They're oof, ultra conservative. I would be an understatement. I wouldn't put a political affiliation upon them. Um, kind of a rough rough group. They do some um, not great stuff. <laughs> we'll say off color things. Uh, and he even called me this year, and he uh, he made a trip down there to go take a picture and it was like an hour out of his way he rented a car on it like before a game drove all the way down there just so he could get a, a picture in front of this place and send it to me um but 
it really is. It's just like those ridiculous, like little stories that you hear or that you can think back upon. Like you just get those every day. I mean, we had a, another guy, I remember before the days before his starts, he would caddy on golden tea for an, for another player. Like who needs a caddy on golden tea? But that's, that's just the type of nonsense that, but it keeps the clubhouse light. Uh, no matter how ridiculous and over the top it is, like it keeps the clubhouse light. And I mean, in a season, I mean, you, you know, like you've got to do whatever you can to keep, keep the mood and atmosphere light and not too like intense and over the top because especially uh, speaking from baseball, I mean, it's 162 games in 183 days. That doesn't count spring training. That doesn't count the postseason. Like you're together constantly you are together more than your family than when you're with your family um and that's just a lot of time to spend with anybody and you can't take you cannot be on an emotional roller coaster um and have success i don't think i never did the math where it was 162 and 183 and it was a grind mm-hmm. I, I know it's a grind in baseball but i never actually that gives me a new perspective like wow you're talking less than 20 it's what 21 my math track one yeah yeah, and that changed actually in I think seventeen. So before that, it was one hundred and eighty days. So you, we got three more off days. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, and that is well, that is wild. All right, so we talk about so we we talk about the journey that you got to where you are, and that, to paint the picture for like the wide array of experiences that you have. So really, want to kind of jump into is one just like a little bit of the X's and O's of rehab because that's something that I'm passionate about. Our listeners are are in the weeds on some of that. So we broadly speaking, you know, what is your approach to rehab? that's that's a great that's a deep question um i'll try not to get off on too many tangents with this um i'm honestly like at this point i'm looking for very sound physiological principles and like what what's taking this athlete away from those like why can they not reoxygenate a system or like uh, a muscle strain like okay yeah muscle strains one thing but like are we talking about like, what about their vascular system? Because, like, you tear muscle tissue, you're tearing vascular tissue. Like, the, so, again, it's kind of getting back to some basics. But, like, I, I always go back to, uh, I use the duck analogy a lot. Like, even when things seem simple, there's a lot going on, like, under the surface. Um, so, I, I mean, just basic, like, I'm going to take a, you know, a, a range of motion assessment for their body. Uh, we're going to force plate test. I'm going to look at a lot of muscle oxygenation things. I look at entitled CO2, right versus left nostril. So I'm looking at more asymmetry. Um, that tells me something about their brain as well. Um, I'm always going to do spirometry testing. Uh, I'm going to do uh, foot strength testing. And most of these things, there's like really good research behind it. It's just like people have not pieced a lot of it together more often than not. Um, I mean, and then beyond that, I'm getting into more thermography actually. So that's ultimately to complement some of the things I'm seeing with Moxie, like the muscle oxygenation. That's uh, it gives starting to give a picture into more redox potential as well. So again, it's that sounds like deep, but part of it's simple and part of it's just like, if you know your principles, is it Van Gogh or Rembrandt that said, like, know your principles well enough to break them? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's that's our profession as a whole. Because um, for me, that paints a picture of, like, what they're able to do performance-wise, what they're able to do at rest. So, because we have to think about, like, off-season is about, like, how can I train and push this guy further? In-season is more about how can I get him to recover faster than everybody else so he can be at his peak for that next game. Um, And for me, a lot of that comes through their ability to control air and like what the downstream effects of that chemically are. So there's two things, there's two topics that I want to hear a little bit more about. And one was you were talking about, like when you said a a muscle injury, Mm -hmm. right? The vascular injury too. And I know you've been diving deep into Moxie technology. So one, I want to double click on Moxie, but then two, you, you started talking about spirometry too, which yes, it has been around in other professions, right? If we talk about pulmonologists, right? That's mm-hmm. something that's very common with them or people that assess lungs or deal with asthma. Those are measurements that most in that field are familiar with. 
But in the world of performance and rehab, there's very little, if any at all, where we talk about um, the oxygenation locally in the tissue, mm-hmm. which the MOXIE technology does, or centrally with the spirometry. So if we kind of look at those two pieces of tech and measurements, can you dive a little bit deeper into why that stuff's meaningful, but then also how you make it practical? Yeah, yeah. Now, honestly, that's the big thing is like practicality of it. Um, yeah, you know, so again, I'm always going to get spirometry out of like into the equation. That's part of the initial assessment. Um, and I think just to take it into performance mindset, yes, like pulmonologists are doing that, but you start looking at like VO2 max testing's been around forever. So I really want to look at, and, and I don't do VO2 max testing at this point. Like, I think it's a, it's a nice adjunct if you have it. Um, but I, I say that to like, we're really seeing VO2 max testing happening every night out on the court, out on the field. Like, what's the first thing like a, a pitcher gets on the mound? They're, they're in a tough, tough spot. They step off. They take a deep breath. VO2 max, t- uh, same thing's going to happen on the court. Like you see them, like the whistle blows, their their hands are on their knees and they're huffing and puffing. And, and that's every sport. Um, so what I really like to see is like, okay, like a certain measurement in my spirometry testing, okay, I know this guy can move that much air. Like he has the capability. But the, what the, v- the difference of like whether they're on the court or if you do VO2 max testing is like, how do those things equal out? Because if they can move that much air, how long can they control that? Because that's really the, it's the breaking point is what VO, uh, VO2 test is of, how, of when they can no longer coordinate their breath to, to actually utilize oxygen efficiently. Because when that thing hap- when that happens, when you hit that breaking point, your heart rate's going to go out, you're going to go up. They're going to lose coordination and we've all seen that in our respective sports. Like you've seen guys just start, you know, they start bricking everything. They start, uh, you see like even their running stride starts to change or like in baseball, they can't repeat, like they can't throw a strike anymore. Um, so you're going to see that in every single sport. And those are honestly, those are, I would say eight out of 10 times for a non probably higher for a non-contact that's when your injury is going to occur because there is a loss of central coordination um so really the breath is the master like communicator of all of these systems within us our heart our muscular system our brain like it's it's trying to conduct the orchestra that's happening within within our systems for those who have never done a spirometry test could you quickly just walk through walk us through what that is yeah. So there's honestly, there's a lot of good handheld versions. Even, um, it's really taking a maximal deep breath. You plug your nose and you've got like a tube that you breathe through. Um, so, um, like I'll, I'm generally going to look at peak expiratory flow. Um, let's see, I'll simplify this more. It's like how much lung volume do they have? How much, uh, how much, pressure or velocity can they create with that breath in one second? Um, and there's a ton of research just for longevity purposes that, that goes kind of unlook. Uh, James Nestor did a good job of discussing that in his book, Breath. Um, they also take a, 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 the difference between the two, and uh, that's how they generally are going to figure out like asthma and, um, and whatnot. So um, I'm always looking at those numbers and seeing again, I I generally take it back to like, okay, how much of this can they actually control for time? Because all our sports are dictated on time. Like, I mean, the average inning in a game is 10 minutes. Uh, The average drive in the NFL is about 10 minutes. Um, So they're, they're in shorter, they're in different type of bursts. But again, the breath, you go back to the breath and as things get more intense, People usually start holding their breath (laughs) or they start breathing harder and harder. And those things, uh, they can have a huge impact. Again, it goes right back to the coordination, but also talk about the mental side of it. You talk to, I mean, 100% of athletes that that have been in the league for a while, they're all going to tell you it's more mental at that level anyways. Mm -hmm. So how are we tapping into that? beyond sitting on a couch and, and talking about like, how are we building that into our training? 
Um, so there's like, for me, there's a breathing device I use. I prefer to use it within the training, can do it as a standalone as well. But um, in that way, like we can start working on coordination breathing. So taking like how, how much volume can we move, like volume of air can we move and then start pushing the breaths per minute, start pushing the time. So it becomes, now this is a training thing. We're not talking, I'm not, I'm not bashing Wim Hof when I say this, but it's like, it's not, that's a different thing, if that makes sense. And that doesn't feel like a performance thing for athletes. So you have to put it back into a performance context. Um, so I was working with an athlete earlier today, we were doing tidal volume breath. So our heart, our breath, they work off frequency and volume. Frequency almost always is the com- like the compensatory mechanism of that system. Um, and then volume, the more air, the more blood we can push, like the more efficient and the less the other, the compensatory mechanism has to work. So our breaths per minute will drop down if we're moving more air. So yeah, we work tidal volume breathing. I'll add that into more of, I'll say an orthopedic lens, but we can call it mobility, start opening up different parts of the trunk. Um, especially when you're in pitchers, as an example, like and this is any athlete, like their trunk is going to be limited more often than not one rotating one way compared to the other. So hey, can we start opening up that in some different ways? But let's say you're, I like using the tidal volume work as like my A2. If I have my A1, let's say I'm box squatting, just as an example, my A2 might be that tidal volume breathing or my A3, whatever. It's it's going to be part of my program um, because it's just, I'm working on becoming more efficient and I'm working some of the same qualities, like strength qualities. Um, I do speed breathing, which is a little bit more like overspeed work. Um, so you've got shorter bursts, but it's going to start to spike the sympathetic nervous system, uh, do a lot of hypercapnic work, which is people usually look at hypoxia. They're, they're kind of on the same continuum, um, where hypoxia is going to be that, that low O2 environment. Yeah, it's high CO2, but hypercapnia is high CO2. I didn't say low O2 more of a parasympathetic response. Like the heart rate's generally not going to spike. It shouldn't spike with it. Um, with hypoxia, there's more of an anxious feeling that occurs when guys aren't able to like breathe. And you can't think like you get a vasoconstriction in the, in the brain, the cere- uh, cerebellum actually, when you go into hypoxia, whereas research is pretty clear on hypercapnia, you actually get a massive like blood flow into the cerebellum. So it's like you're getting more like opportunity to think clearly. So when people talk about CO2 tolerance, I think they need to start thinking on that side of the fence because that's, that's where the money, like the guys that can perform under pressure, those are your, you know, your Navy SEALs. Those are your Michael Jordans. When they can main, like control that, that's a game changer. Not only that, like a lot of this can be controlled can be controlled by you mentally, but uh, I mean, this, this can go a lot of different directions. It's a you get a huge natural anti-inflammatory push, you get a huge vasodilation of your whole system. So, like that's generally where I'm going to introduce it. Again, I say like going back to that duck analogy. It's like it seems like they're just doing this this breath practice, um, you know, in the evenings but there's a lot of other purposes behind it. They're getting a recovery effect. So they're starting to become more parasympathetic. It's driving up their CO2. So if they have sleeping problems, it's going to help them fall asleep easier. Um, And again, like long-term, which I've personally measured this uh, on myself with like an omega wave. Um, So I've seen big EEG changes even, and and actually glucose changes. So there's, uh, there's some interesting red light things coming out now actually too, where, uh, that are creating some similar responses, but that's a, that's another rabbit hole. So, <laughs> all right. So we talked about, we talked about the spirometry and lung capacity, exhale volume with some of the measurements you're taking. So that's more from a central perspective, right? Mm-hmm. If we dive a little bit deeper into some of the stuff that you're doing from a peripheral aspect with the MOXIE, first, can you just tell us what MOXIE is Yeah, and then explain to us how that is being integrated with some of the breath work and lung and 
let's say breath training. I want to say breath work, breath yeah. training that you were doing. Uh, so I honestly like I use Moxie with everything. Um, it is a so muscle oxygen monitor. Uh, so it's going to tell you like local muscle oxygenation. Um, it uses a near infrared light to pick that up. So it'll uh, it'll find the local muscle oxygenation, and then it will also give you a readout of well, it's hemoglobin and myoglobin together. So it's a uh, it's total hemoglobin. Um, so it, it'll pick up, it can't differentiate between the two, but it'll pick up both of those. But when you start looking at the graph, every, like the oxygen is the sexy one that just makes more conceptual sense to people. I think as you use it longer, you almost value the other part of the graph, like that total hemoglobin, um, part of the graph e- even more so, cause that's almost like your gas tank where the oxygen is just how much gas do you have? So if I have a Mazda Miata tank and I'm, I'm full, I'm like, okay, that's, that's great. But if I have a, uh, you know, a Mack truck tank that I can fill up, that's just more performance potential. Um, so yeah, you, you can see that you can put it, honestly, you can put it anywhere on your body. I, I've found some places to be, give you a better indication systemically than others. That, that took a lot of playing, uh, but, um, uh, some places will give you a little more noise than others, but some are just, you get a lot of value. Like, I mean, in, in pictures, just as an example, like the forearm, it gave me a new appreciation for the importance of the forearm, um, just with throwing, not that like, yeah, you know, it's important, but everybody looks at the shoulder. Uh, but I was seeing way more, like way more information, getting way more information out of the forearm than anything. And just the catapult effect that occurs. Cause any explosive action we do in sports, there is a massive amount of tension that is picked up. I need to talk with my hands more. <laughs> There's a massive amount of uh, muscular tension that allows you to, you know, express your elastic qualities, uh, which is really what what these guys are. They're super elastic uh, to be able to throw, you know, 100 miles an hour, being able to hit a ball 500 feet, being able to... Uh, shoot. I mean, I mean, you name it, dunk from the free throw line. So what, what, what the moxie and the local tissue oxygenation, Yeah. what 10,000 of you, what is it measuring and why is that important? Yeah. So it's made like if I am low on oxygen in an area, like, okay, there's number one is if I'm warm, why am I low in oxygen in that area? So that, that should be a, a cause of concern. Uh, so it could be a recovery thing, or maybe, maybe they just do not deliver oxygen very well. Like, because we can utilize oxygen, which elite athletes are generally really good at that. Um, and even think about like you go and work out guys hate resting. Like after they finish a set, they never want to rest so they can utilize oxygen really well, but that delivery, they want to skip over because the, the delivery is really that recovery of that area locally. Um, now you do get a really good, as you use it longer and longer, you get a better idea of what's happening systemically and not just locally. But I think just to keep it simple, like you're looking at intramuscular coordination when you're using a moxie monitor, just bare bones. Like I'm looking at the graph, how well can they physiologically coordinate whatever they're doing, what it could be a breath thing. It could be, it could be squatting. They could be out on the court they could be out on the field. So I, I've used it kind of in every scenario at this point. Um, so for me, like I'll use it to dictate rest periods or maybe how many sets we're doing, how many reps. Um, it, it all depends on your intent of, you know, your training or your rehab session. That's what was always cool for me because it didn't necessarily, it changed how I thought about things. But if my intent was true, then I was just able to drive it better. Um, but I, I, you definitely start to see as time goes, especially if you're starting to do an athletic movement uh, or something within their sport, like you start to see, okay, well, here's where they fatigue first. Now, what strategies can I use to help them recover from that quicker? So I saw that just uh, hamstring injuries, just as an example, like injured tissue does not utilize oxygen. So a guy injures his hamstring, uh, 
he's like, you can get him in whatever position you want. That tissue does not want to utilize oxygen. So like that, that for me was like an aha moment when I start seeing that in real time, like, all right, goes back to that, like vascular tearing. Like I'd never had thought about that before. I'd always just thought like, oh, okay, strain his hamstring, work on him. You know, like my thinking was like, if I do these isometrics, like it'll help realign some of the scarring that's laid down, which I still do think about those things. But now it's like another layer of like, okay, like I need to help rebuild. So whether it's torn or whether it's constricted at the moment, like how do we open that back up? So I do a lot more sustained isometrics early on than I ever did before. Uh, and like sustain, like I'm not talking 10 seconds, like I'm uh, 30s, probably the minimum. And I'm trying to push that. And now I'm, I'm looking for, can they utilize oxygen? Or if they're not utilizing very well, can I open the capillary network up more? And so again, I'm not, I'm not giving them a time. I just say, go. <laughs> tell, tell them to push harder or whatever, um, which is interesting because there is some really good um, like brain plasticity research on like isometrics for like 15 to 20 minutes. I could never do that with an athlete, I don't think. Uh, you, you'd lose interest and it would be miserable, but, um, but there actually is. Um, I know some people doing that at a high level, which is which is cool. There's just, there's a lot to, there's a lot more to isometrics that I think, Alex Natera right now is bringing to light uh, the importance of them. Um, but yeah, this the Moxie was the eye opener for me when I started seeing like, okay, like I started seeing some trends and I'll finish your question, question, but like I started seeing some trends of like, hey, when we, when we would fly, when guys would be dehydrated and they'd get hurt, when like you could just tell like neurologically, it, like it was a tough game or emotionally it was a tough game the night before, they'd come in. I was seeing all these things with the moxie of like, you'd see this big drop off in THB on the moxie, but their oxygen level would be sky high. So I was like, wow. So they've got all this oxygen, but nothing's able to pick it up. They can't use it. It's, it's a little bit like being in an asthmatic state. Asthmatics are huffing and puffing. They've got the air, but they've got nothing to pick it up and take it around. Um, so I was starting to see that over and over again. I was like, okay, well, how, how can we build this up to help them recover better? So again, isometrics were an idea. I think that's why a lot of elite track coaches use more of like Gambetta's type of leg circuits the day after a heavier training session. Uh, they talk about it for the hormonal response but I think you're getting the same response. You're getting like, you're getting a huge increase in blood. You're getting a vasodilation response throughout the system. Again, there's, it looks simple on the outside, but there's a big reason for it. Um, I mean, shoot, the dry sauna, blood flow restriction, started using a lot more, um, even passive blood flow restriction for recovery purposes. Because shoot, if we could drive that up, their legs would maybe feel heavy for a little while, but like I knew we were going to get this massive like, systemic push out of that. Um, so yeah, that, back to the injury scenario though, like the, so opening up the blood vessels, as soon as that started to happen, usually within a couple of days, you could see them start to utilize oxygen again, which is like, oh, okay. Like now I'm seeing this happen in real time. Now what? So it was like, how far could they uh, this is another trend I, I started seeing. So how far they could utilize oxygen down. I talk about tank size, but if let's say if they could only get to 40% of that oxygen reading number um, in a moxie, and let's say they were going from 70 or 75%, uh, and they could get down to 40%, like, okay, like I, I'd start, I start running usually days, it's probably day four is an average after a hamstring strain. Um, and I, I go, more of a short to long approach. Um, and usually like you would just see the intensity pick up as they were able to utilize more oxygen. So even like if I was doing things passively, if they could utilize more oxygen, I would then see that on the field. I was like, okay, there's something there. And as soon as they'd hit a certain threshold, like usually like sub 20%, you'd see their intensity would be, I mean, 80 to 90% of, of whatever they could they could do. It's like, well, that's pretty cool. 
But then it was like the next, okay, then it's like, okay, what's next? Well, now they could they could elicit that much force and contraction, but could they let it go and relax? So yeah, you could do that with breath. Some guys probably aren't going to do that. So you again, you have to figure out a strategy for that individual athlete of, hey, what can they even do on the court, on the field? It's not, it shouldn't draw attention to them to where, uh, to where it will help them relax that, uh, that tension or that it's an occlusion that's really occurring because of, because of muscular tension. So that's, that goes back to that repeat sprint ability, which there's, you know, again, there's amazing research behind that in most sports. Um, and I think that's the piece where people have gotten hung up on that, Again, not a lot of people are using Moxie, but they're trying to build in that repeat sprint ability. And that's where I think like they are not releasing that tension. So they're just putting themselves at more exposure for injury. And I, I do, I, I empathize with like, well, sometimes, you know, they're, they have to operate in those areas. Yes, they do, but do they have to operate in that the first, you know, week they're coming back from an injury? Like you probably want to, when you're de- dealing with guys that are making 15, 20 plus million a year, you probably want to err, err on the side of like, hey, let's optimize this. Then we can worry about that. And that's, that's for me, that's more of an off-season training thought process where in-season I'm looking at them just optimizing whatever we can. And then, again, if releasing that tension, that's a recovery piece. goes back to what we were talking about earlier, like in-season. How can I recover better than the guy next to me. That's just going to give me, and on a football field, does that give me another three yards on a guy? Like that's a touchdown, you know, like all of the sports that we've operated in, they're games, of, it's a game of inches. So you get, you get one step, the guy, one of the main guys I was mentored by in this stuff, his name's Brian Kozak. He was doing this stuff in the hockey space for a number of years. That was his thing. He's like, man, if I get what if I get four meters? He's Canadian. <laughs> what if I get a four meter, four meters ahead on a shift? Like that's a goal, or like that's at least an off offensive opportunity to to make a difference in that game. So again, I, I get kind of carried away with some of this stuff, but like these are things that for me, when I started looking at them, I was like, wow, this is like a whole new world for me that I hadn't you learn some of these things, but when you start seeing them in real time and start putting them together, it's like, wow, this explains a lot. Yes. You, I mean, as you've been talking and talking and talking about this <laughs> in detail, I'm just over here thinking like, man, like I haven't even considered some of these topics that you have alluded to because I think like we alluded to earlier was where's just a lack of education and awareness to it because we're traditionally just taught a lot of things that come around, stem around exercise, manual therapy, mm-hmm. Some passive modalities. I was great. I, was, I agreed with the notion of passive BFR, blood flow, blood flow restriction. Do that very frequently as a recovery modality because there's some very powerful research there as far as what that can do. So I agree with that there. And just like it, just I, I know I'm going to leave this conversation thinking, okay, Andrew just mentioned a bunch of things that I am uneducated on and I'm not incorporating in my practice. And it's an opportunity to go learn and try to just be better in that space because I do think it's probably an area that most of us could improve upon. Yeah, it was honestly, it was a big eye opener for me. Um, There's a group down in Austin, Texas called Evolve that uh, Aaron Davis, Pat Estes and and Brian, uh, who I mentioned earlier, were all a part of that. And they were really the the ones that like, they opened my eyes to a a lot of that, both from the breath perspective and the physiological perspective. They were pushing the moxie um, and like for for me, it was just like, you know, like I took the bait and, and I went all in. Uh, you drank the Kool-Aid. Yeah, I drank the Kool-Aid. But <laughs> the cool thing about it was like, for me, I wanted to prove either something was right or wrong. So Brian was really good about hammering this into my head. He's like, man, you got to put a, like, put your biases to the side. Like, cool. Have your intent in your workout, your training. He said, use it yourself and just play, see what happens. And you're going to find new ways that, that I haven't thought about um, to create different responses. But it started, again, it started opening up a whole new world to me of like, again, the how could I manipulate a system just through the breath? How could I, you know, how could I increase my stroke volume within a workout without crushing my legs? 
how like uh, like the how could I you know get more oxygen utilize, utilization with more of an explosive method compared to you know maybe I just need to do more reps and <laughs> like again it like we could go on and on about this stuff but it was like wow okay kind of goes back to the saying that like all roads lead to Rome, but you need an intent to get there. I think you need to be in the right direction. Once you figured that out and that, that was part of the BFR. That was part of like, uh, you know, just a traditional like bodyweight circuit or bodybuilding workout. Um, the, I love the, like the dry sauna. Um, but again, COVID hits, you can't use dry saunas anymore. So you better think <laughs> of another way. But I think the, the human body and I think nature as a whole, there's always more than one way to make something happen. And so like, that's something that just always kind of sat in the back of my mind, like, all right, I can figure out another way to do this. Um, sometimes we can't figure it out, like ask somebody else in another, in another area. That's one thing, uh, always been, I've always looked for people that I thought like had a lot to share, uh, and tried to learn from them. It didn't matter like what's, what industry they were in or where they were doing it. So, I mean, that's like, that's what you hope for. Just break down those walls, learn from the best, expand your, expand your base of knowledge to then mm-hmm. hopefully better provide people that we work for. Right. And, and a lot of what you were alluding to, there's like a combination of some of the stuff you're doing in team sports. And it sounds like some of the more recent stuff you're doing in the private space. And I know you've made that transition into the private space. So there was one comment you made when we were texting back and forth, like, Hey, what do we want to talk about? Cause we can take this in a million one directions. And I'm going to quote, I'm going to paraphrase this, <laughs> getting deeper in what you can do on the private side. Yeah. And so you worked in the team space for several years. What do you mean by now that you're in the private space, getting deeper in what you can do on the private side? Yeah. No, it's, um, we spend all these time with athletes when you're on the team side, but the reality of it is you only have so much of their time to like, if you have an A plan, like what I see as an A plan, uh, like it's very rare, unless you have a long-term rehab with somebody that you're going to have them on lockdown for a while, they'll do whatever you ask. Like, it's very rare that you're going to get to run what you see as that A plan. Uh, and, and I think what going into the private world showed me was like, wow, okay, now you can like really start putting it all together. And when somebody's coming to to pay you to do this, like they're coming to you for your expertise and doing these things. So uh, it's a lot easier. Like you still have to create something like they need to understand why you're, why, why you want them to do something but it, it becomes a lot easier to put this all together and be like, hey, like this is for you to be on the field more and perform more like that. It's all about that. Not that in season they don't get that, but they, again, you, you have other athletes to see. They have other demands of their time. I mean, sometimes players will walk in and be like, hey, you have 15 minutes. I need to feel better. Like that, that's the reality of it. And like, some of that is like, there's pressure in that. And so like, you have to get results, um, which like love that. Um, but again, when you're able to get deeper kind of under the hood on some of these things, I think you start to unleash a, a totally new side of, of that athlete to like you almost, it's like you're introducing a new side of themselves to themselves. It sounds like Austin Powers. Uh, <laughs> um, but there's things these are usually details that they haven't thought about or that the teams haven't spoken to them about. And it's, again, it's not always for lack of knowledge. It's just, there's only so much time in the day. Um, and I know every sport's a little different, uh, as far as like staff to player ratio, but, but I think it is becoming more and more common for the athlete to go outside and look, uh, because they want to look deeper. And, and like, that's, that's exciting for me. Cause that's like, you don't want, you're not trying to take them from the team by, by any means. Again, I'm very empathetic towards that. Like, so I think the communication with the team has to be good, uh, for it to be really successful and in the best interest of the athlete. Um, but like the details are like what I personally get excited about and like, Hey, we can make a long-term change and a short-term change. Um, and it's just like, how much time do we have to do this? Uh, I think that, that for me is, uh, 
it's reinvigorating um, after coming out of, you don't feel beat down. That's not the right way of saying it from the, the team world, but it's just like you are, you get spread so thin and you like, you just don't have some of these opportunities to do some of these things. So I think uh, when, when you're able to start putting a lot of that into practice, for me, it's a game changer because again, these are the teams themselves don't always have time to do this. They don't have time to, to learn some of it as well. And then like that took a, like a lot of these systems, it was like years of like playing and piecing it together and like, you know, asking people, learning from people. Um, but it's ultimately just for a better outcome for, for whomever the individual athlete is. So that's where I, I see it's kind of like a wave of the future now being on the private side of like, they can be super impactful for the teams themselves when in the right situation. I, I wouldn't have said that when I was on the other side of it, but, but now after like uh, doing this for the last couple of years, um, I mean, I was in the team side for 15 years. Um, I, I, I've gained a whole new appreciation and perspective on that. I would agree. And where I th- imagine there was challenges in the past was who, who does the athlete listen to and who has power of what situation, right? Ultimately, it comes down, in my experience, it comes down to executive decision-making and whose ego is getting pushed aside because their decision isn't the right, isn't the one that's being elected for for the athlete. And you raise a good point of when you're working privately with an athlete, you get the opportunity to, like we just talked about, about moxie and spirometry, you get to take those deep dives because they're coming to you willing to pay. When you work in the team setting, we're going to them because that's the environment we work in. So just that the dichotomy of those two situations drastically influences how much you can do and how much you can't do versus everything that you can do in one, in one session. So I just, I just wanted to reiterate some of those points because I can share some of those same sentiments having been on the team side for 14, I think going on 14 or 15, I think I'm coming up on, um, on the team side as well. So I, it's, I'm curious for where that goes for you in the future, but also hopefully one day I intend to get there at some point because uh traveling around the country uh with a newborn at home when my wife's trying to take care of them by herself is not the uh is not the answer yeah uh so one kind of want to wrap things up here with you uh talk a little bit more about just some like um general concept here because we do talk a little bit about here that yeah so we can get in the weeds on the x's and o's and we Mm -hmm. definitely did here today but another thing that um i know is important and i know you spent time in the in studying the the area of sports psychology and CMCP, correct? When you went down that path? Yeah, CMPC. CMPC is a certified mental performance coach. So with that, what I imagine is that was in a space of you recognizing that it's more than just these X's and O's that we talk about, right? It's also helping athletes find their small wins, helping them keep finding the motivation when in the grind of 162 seasons. So with that, the question I want to ask you is when it comes to a small win, right? How do you define a small win? So I think I would have answered this differently even a year ago. Um, honestly, the athlete needs to feel like they're heard. That's like as simple as I think I could make it. And that's that for me has come up over and over now that I've been in the private space. Is like I feel like uh, any, even the general population, they feel like they're not heard from the doctor. Like they're telling them their issues and they feel like, well, no, I'm the doctor. Here's what you have going on. That's they don't feel like that's necessarily what's going on. Not in every situation, but the athletes a lot of times are feeling the same way. They don't feel like either. The, a lot of times they don't feel like the team's really listening to what they're saying, and then they've always got the answer when when they tell them whatever. So uh, that to me is just that's been in the back of my mind really since I got. Early on when I got into the private space, like, and, and I know I've done this in the team setting. So it's like I kick myself now about it. But, um, but yeah, they, they just want to be heard. They want you to provide them an answer. But, hey, like, if you don't know, like, just exhaust every avenue you can to help them find that answer um, as long as they know you're listening and trying to find that for them. Cause I, I, I really do think like that's the basis of communication. There's, I don't want to throw Ken in, into this, um, without, 
him saying this, but to me that that's, that'd be one of the big things he would say. Uh, just, I think about anybody It's you know, it's number one with communication. You're not, you're not communicating if you're not listening. Mm-hmm. It's funny you say, say Ken and you talk about the headspace too, because we had Ben on here uh, a few episodes ago and what Ken taught Ben was treat the brain, you know, treat their brain, don't treat the injury. And I think that goes to the space, the space of, excuse me, a space of, uh, that mental component of it and just having them, like you said, be heard because you're right. There's what you got a team doctor, you got a head athletic trainer, you got a team physical therapist, team strength coach, you probably got someone on the outside talking to the person. You got a head coach. that was a former player. They're probably telling them their perspective. So they're right there. They're sick people. that's telling this athlete, Hey, this is what you have. This is what I did. This is what I did. And they just want to your point. Sometimes they just have questions, their own bias that they're just drowning in everyone else's opinion because everyone wants to help. I will say a lot of it comes out of good intention. Yeah. Um, but they're just drowning in everyone else's voices to the point where sometimes you just got to, like I have an expression when it comes to a new injury, just let, let it breathe, everybody. Just like let it breathe and let them kind of just sift through it at first because we all will come racing down the yeah. down the path willing to help. But sometimes you just got to hit pause, let it breathe and let them kind of explore that themselves. Uh, depending on the, the athlete, I, I think actually all athletes or anybody in general, when they get hurt, that is a form of PTSD that mm-hmm. like we're seeing it occur. So uh, yes, it's not war PTSD, but like if, if you're kind of a bubble player, like you're, you're scared to death of your livelihood. Like, are you going to be able to, you know, are you going to have a job when you're healthy again? Um, are you, you know, if you're an elite player, like there starts creeping in the questions of like, ah, am I going to be like, be able to be myself when I come back. Like all these things do go through players' minds. Uh, and I, I think that's a piece of why we see, take the training side out of it. I think that's why we see a lot of these things occur, like repeated injuries occur. And maybe it's not the same injury, but I think it's the same mental injury we're dealing with. Uh, but we, you can't just throw a Band-Aid on that. And uh, this, I, I don't mean this as a, as a plug for Moxie, but I, I, I've thrown a Moxie on a guy that had a hamstring injury. He had a history of hamstrings, hamstring injuries. I literally just asked him to think about like when the accident, like the injury occurred, and you would you could see in, uh, far away from his head, like you would see the occlusion occur in that. So they're creating that muscular tension just by thinking about it. So like just because you take somebody through a rehab process and they come back and they meet whatever your check marks are, that doesn't mean they're healed. There's a whole other piece of this that it's well beyond me, but like it's, it's stuff that we at least have to take into consideration. Um, and, and I don't have the answer for it, but again, like I, I think that's a, that's a real thing that, I can think of a handful of elite, elite guys in all sports that you see they keep getting certain things that have, that have popped up. And I, I think that's a big piece of it. I think so, too. And often one that's probably not explored enough. Yeah. All right. Let's let's have a little fun here. Right. OK. You've been across many different teams, many different cities, traveled the country mm-hmm. privately with the team. Right. What is your favorite city that you've traveled to? In the States. Okay. In the States. All right. Um, hmm. uh, honestly, I love New York. Okay. What part? So, uh, ooh, all of it. Uh, <laughs> I lived in upstate New York for a little bit close to West Point. Beautiful area. But I like, I just love, I love the city, like Midtown, downtown. Like, I love Manhattan. Um, How does that speak for? That it's the same place where your favorite ballparks to play at too. Is that your favorite uh, ballpark? No, no, okay. actually. Um, I yeah, I just like the city. Like I've got restaurants, coffee shops, a lot of breakfast spots in every city. I love um, favorite ballpark though. Probably Boston. Actually, I I like Boston as a city too. But um, Boston is like the one place in the league where you can cl- like close your eyes, you open them, like okay, this could be. 2023 this could be 1923 um it's still got that vibe uh the crowd's incredible obviously the everybody knows about the green monster but 
Um, it's just a, yeah, it's just a cool place to be. And it's like, you've got, you had, they, they've redone some things, but it's like, you've got this long walk from the dugout, uh, up, up into the clubhouse, which is, again, it just feels like, man, this is old. Uh, Wrigley had a, had a little bit of that, lost some of it, um, just with some of the remodels. Um, but I did ride, like I traveled with a folding bike for a long time. And so on that note, Chicago was when you go to Wrigley and you can just take a ride by the lake and stuff in, that was a, that was a good ride if it wasn't too cold. That is super creative that you traveled with a folding bike. Uh, I got the idea from somebody else, but yeah, I did it for about five years. It was, uh, uh, I, I loved it. It was a different way to see the cities. I would usually, and uh, which I think you'll be able to appreciate this is like, you don't have any time by yourself. <laughs> Even like when you're on the road, it's like you wake up and like, okay, that's like your block of time. But like, for me, it was like, I'd usually, you know, like grab a book, go get breakfast, read for a bit, or go meet up with somebody, um, depending on the town we were in. And, uh, and then I would ride in from there. Um, and it was, yeah, that was just like my, it's kind of like my meditation. I get that. And mine's, uh, we unfortunately don't get to spend as much time in a single city like yeah. y'all did in baseball. So my thing is, uh, if I can, weather permitting, um, get a run in on game day in between shoot around mm-hmm. in the game. It's usually like that three to four hour gap is kind of like the only time you get like, okay, this is yeah, this is my time. That's your chance. Uh, I'm glad to hear you say Fenway because that was the ballpark I grew up going to. So <laughs> I'll take that one. I know. I should say, so I grew up in Kansas City. Um, Their ballpark, well, they've done a great job with that yeah. ballpark. Only got to go back once. Um, and that was my first year in Atlanta. Uh, and that was like, that was sentimental because again, like you grow up like being in the stands there. Um, I, I think when you get into pro sports, people always say, Oh, are you a fan? Or like, like you lose that like mm-hmm. right away. You, a piece of advice I got like right when I was interning actually. So this takes us back to the beginning of the conversation. It was like, you got to decide if you're a fan or this is your job. And like, I, I couldn't agree more with, with that sentiment. And like that stuck with me from, from day one of interning. I was like, okay, like that's the mindset. Cause they're all normal people, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I think for me, it's like, I got the, you know, the group text with the boys back home and, yeah. you know, they're like, you know, you sign a new place. Like, Oh, have you met so-and-so yet? Yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. they like guys like pump the brakes here. Like, that's just, this is my job. I'm, I'm, I'm not here to, yeah. you know, go get the autograph and see and see what y'all are up. But it's, I will say like having grown up in the Boston area, like I grew up in Rhode Island, went to all the Boston sports, playing at the, the garden in Boston mm-hmm. is the only space where like it is, somewhat where the fanboy comes out with me just yeah. because like I will be on the court like in pregame down here on the court and I mean we could only afford the seats all the <laughs> way at the top where I'm not kidding yeah. section 316 whatever that row is at the garden if you're sitting at the top row you can actually touch the drywall ceiling <laughs> that high up so like it's just like that that for me is like okay I started like where like you know that expression on yeah. Instagram like where it started and how it's going it's just like for me that's the one space where it's like you know what these are the moments where I like take in, enjoy it as a fan. And every time that happens, I just remember like some of the stories my boys just yeah. starting, starting shenanigans up there and we can save that for off here. But uh, <laughs> for me, when you talk about the fan and the job, like you're right, 99.9% it's a job, but yeah. that's the one time where I'm like, okay. I'm yeah. Good. Well, I'm and those, those are special moments. Like those are like your family's usually there or you have friends you grew up with there. And like, I remember I'm literally this is our first game in Kansas city. So I had a bunch of family that was there, but, uh, I remember walking out of our dugout and, or not of our dugout of our clubhouse. And it kind of wraps around to get to the dugout. And a lot of those times they have, uh, it's like a concourse underneath the stadium. So like they'll have fans that have special seats that they're taking through there. Mm-hmm. And like, I ran into somebody literally right when I leave the clubhouse that I had gone to like elementary school with. It's like, wow, this is, this is pretty, this is pretty surreal. They're, they're paying to see the game like that. I'm, I'm here I'm working. I'm not playing on the field, but, um, but yeah, it is. Those are, those are special moments that, that you definitely hold on to. I think again, there's like winning the world series was, you know, an unbelievable experience, but it's like, there's so many moments along the way that as crazy as this will sound, it's like, man, making the playoffs the first time in Atlanta was like, that was 
almost more meaningful for me because I saw like tear comment about like how like where we were just a couple years before and like this happened way faster than everybody thought. Um, and, like I remember like we were hugging in the dugout and just like wow like that that was like such a surreal feeling and again the World Series was amazing. I, I'm not this is not meant to downplay that, but it's just like you have so many of these small like snapshot moments that that we do get to experience. It's a ton of time. It's like people don't realize like how much you give up to do these things either. Um, but I mean, you got to love it <laughs> to do it. But those those moments are when you're like, all right, I wouldn't take that back. Yeah, I agree. Uh, well, this was, this was fun. We could easily sit here and talk for all afternoon. But I think both of our wives would uh, be <laughs> thoroughly frustrated with us. <laughs> <laughs> so now that you're in the private space, uh, for listeners that want to learn more about what you're doing and try and even just talk, maybe shop some of the things that we're talking about here, where can they reach out or find you? Yeah, um, I'm not overly active on social media, but if you reach out to me on there, I'll, I'll generally get back. So, uh, I mean, I have Instagram, I have Twitter. Honestly, if you just email me, like I'm I'm going to be pretty good about getting back to that. Um, and that's just my name, Andrew at Continuum. Continuum has two U's. Some people don't realize that. Uh, HP.com. And my website's the same, just www.continuumhp.com. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is the stuff like I love to chat it up and, and talk through ideas. I mean, again, it's like you talk to like when you're interviewing people, I want you to take my job. Like, like I want you to bring ideas to like, tell me I'm wrong. Like I, that, that for me is the exciting stuff. It's like, all right, let's, let's work through this, find another way. So email me. I agree. Awesome. Well, appreciate you coming down today, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the finding small wins podcast. If you enjoy these conversations as much as I do hit that subscribe button and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts to join our finding small wins community, head on over to finding small And for more information about me and my journey, please follow me on social media at adam.loyakino. Thanks again for tuning in. And remember, keep finding your small wins.